Welcome to the Innocence Project London podcast. My name is Louise Hewitt and I'm the director of the organisation. The Innocence Project London is a pro bono law clinic and charity which deconstructs claims of innocence from convicted individuals who exhausted the criminal appeals process. We aim to make applications to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. My name is Dean Gillespie. I live in Fairborn, Ohio, where the airplane was invented. Hi, I'm Pam. I'm Pam Montank. I'm Dean's partner for nine going on 10 years, which I had to remind him of last night. I graduated high school. My dad got me a job at General Motors, which is a car automotive manufacturing over in America. Um, it was a union job. It was a really, really, really good job to have in America. And um, the guy who was the boss of all the plants around me was, uh, he didn't like me because he had a friend who he wanted to get the job. Um, so he started taking my information from my work records to the police department that he used to work at. He was a cop there before he started at GM. And he was trying to figure out a way to get rid of me because you just can't fire someone in a union shop. You have to have a pretty good reason. So he started going back and forth with my information, trying to get me hooked up on something so he could get rid of me and kept going back to his um, same buddies over and over. We, we proved in federal court that he went to this the department four separate times trying to uh, have me uh, hooked up on anything. Finally, uh, he went to the police department on this particular case that I went to prison for that I did not commit. And the original detectives dis, uh, disqualified me as even a suspect. They said that there was, I didn't match the description in no way, shape, or form. But when uh, those two guys retired, he went back to the police department. And that at that time, his best friend's son was a detective there who was the chief of the police department. His son was now a detective. And he took it to him, and they formulated a, pretty much put a plan together to get me set up for all this stuff. And that's how it went down. Yeah, I went to court and, um, you know, we went through a kangaroo trial and, and I got sent to prison. I didn't fit the description in any way. You know, my lawyer went down each each description uh, thing. Uh, you know, did the person who attacked you have a dark suntan? Yes, he did. I'm very white. Did the person who attacked you have a cleft chin? Uh, no, he didn't. I have a cleft chin. Did the person who attacked you have severe acne scars on both sides of his face? Yes, he did. Obviously, I don't. And it just, the list goes on and on. I couldn't figure out why I'm sitting in this chair. If I don't fit that description at all, why are we sitting here? But the jurors, you know, was ready to go home and they just said guilty. And what was the evidence that led to you going back to court to get that conviction overturned? What we found out was the file that was made previously of him taking my information down, the reports that the police officers made stating that he had brought my information into him and they disregarded me as a suspect. One of, the, one of the major things was they knew the pant size of the person who committed a crime because the, 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 the victim seen the, the, the label on his jeans. So they knew that I couldn't fit in those pants. Um, all that report stuff was not in the file, it wasn't handed over to my lawyers. It wasn't handed over to anybody. It was just sanitized from the file. He basically just started a whole new file on me. So uh, we got with the two detectives who did those reports and they came and testified in a federal court saying that, yes, we did uh, check this guy out for previous uh, 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 inquiries from another person. And 
he did not fit the description. We made a report, we put it in the file, and you know that was that. So that was missing. That was uh, one of the other things that were missing in the in the file that caused the federal court to throw the case out, um, and then re- supposed to, you know want to retry it, but it ended up getting completely thrown out. I just want to take this opportunity to thank our production partner and sponsor, Jano Media, for their support in delivering this podcast. They've helped us to facilitate great conversations that connect us with our audience and their skills and expertise mean we can concentrate exclusively on generating great content to engage, inform and inspire. Once the state of Ohio uh, finally acknowledged that I was a wrongfully imprisoned person, then you start the the state of Ohio statute uh, has the state of Ohio has a statute for wrongful conviction compensation, which is basically a math figure that you figure out how many years, what you know. There's a little argument of what type of job you could have had, what type of employment you could have had, um, all of that stuff. But also at the same time, I also had a federal lawsuit on the Brady violations, which is a civil suit which is a whole big different game of, uh, of, of fighting for your compensation. Um, so the, the December 9th thing set me up in motion to start for the state compensation, which I just got about three weeks ago. And how difficult was that compensation process? State compensation was more of a paperwork thing. It was, it was you know, arguments on uh, what type of employment I would have had, which both of the jobs that I had on record were both union jobs with high paying jobs. Uh, and so there was really not much to argue about all the stuff that I'd done in prison. It w- was high skilled, uh, uh, stuff I'd done for community service, which was very well documented, which is a high skilled, high paying stuff also, which helped to bump my, uh, compensation up with that. But the federal civil suit was the, one of the most miserable times of my life. Uh, because I knew what was at stake and, you know, I had to go back and relive the whole entire case from, from the beginning. And the lawyers kept saying, you're not on trial, you're not on trial, but we're starting from the very beginning and we're going through the whole thing. Yeah, I am. Um, and that took, uh, was a week of preparation and two weeks in trial in a federal court. The PTSD was overwhelming. You know, you, you, you go to prison and you live through that place um, the PTSD is just unbelievable. And uh, then once you go back and have to relive each of it every single day for three weeks on end, it, it, it's from sun up to sundown. Um, it is it's hard. It is hard on you mentally to uh, uh, get through that. And um, I, I tell you, it was just it was terrible. It was miserable. Absolutely miserable time. And Pam, as Dean's partner, how was that for you? The thing too is that I came in after he got out and I did not know anything. I did not know his family. I, I had no, you know, acquaintances of his, what he's about and who he is. It, it, not, not that that changes anything, but it also kind of puts me at this part of an outsider reading it in a newspaper or hearing it, you know, hearsay. There, there were things that happened that um, when he feels out of control, um, the phone, technology, that would happen. Um, but I think my first case was when he did his deposition for the federal trial and how that impacted him physically, that he could not function. And he it took him a long time mentally to kind of come back from that. And he was speaking in Barcelona 
and at that time and he he you know he was able to do all of that but it, it really did it impacted him and that I think kind of made him more aware of it too and the place the the, the pieces that are in place now for the PTSD knowledge for him he was able to use during the trial every time they changed the tape I had to go outside and throw up but the the, the and I almost threw up in the room. I literally went from as soon as they shut the tape off, ran outside out the front of the building and just threw up. And that didn't stop for four and a half, five hours of that. And then finally, the last couple hours, you know, I was able to kind of get a grip of things. But it, it was unbelievable. That deposition was unbelievable. And then get on an airplane the very next day yeah. to go to Spain and speak over there was just and I was miserable. I was terribly miserable. And he didn't understand it either. No. You know, that was part two. He wasn't understanding what was going on. That it was, it was really confusing. It was a confusing time for both of us because I, you know, I thought he just had it all together, you know, and then just to see that impact on, on him that um, I didn't expect at all. So we have a lady, uh, Donna Marison, who is a psychologist who has come on board with us. And, and now, you know, I've learned and understand what was going on at that time. Basically, you know, you go into this prison and you got to figure out, I'm in a close maximum security prison, which is extreme violence. Um, you got to figure out what you're going to do. And, and uh, I, you know, I was listening to a lot of music and I just started doing art and I was doing art out of found objects and just trash and anything I could pick up and turn it into something. Um, and I started doing that while I was sitting in there and, and sending it home, you know, not thinking nothing of it, just thinking, man, that's cool. And once I got done with it, you know, it's got to leave the institution immediately. So I'd send it home and I'd start another project. And I just got lucky when I came home that a lady was interested in it. And uh, she wrote a book about uh, prison art. Uh, the book is by Dr. Nicole Fleetwood, Art During the Era of Mass Incarceration. And it's all about all the different types of prison art across America and the world, actually. Um, and she said, hey, I want to put your stuff in my book. OK. And then the next thing you know, the book was a humongous hit uh, and ended up we had a show at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And now I'm a big headed, big time artist. And I like to brag about that. <laughs> I did get my state compensation which yeah. is separate from the big one you've seen in the newspaper. That's separate. That's totally separate. But when I do get my big one, I have to pay back the money to the state. Why does, that, how does that work? Yeah, it's an yeah. offset provision that they've protected themselves with. If you win a civil suit, you have to pay back your state money. Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? No, not at all. That's no. a crazy situation. That means you you don't get any you get very little compensation then for what is not your fault. You, you got that right, right. because you've seen, you've seen, the, you've seen the, the uh, verdict, which was uh, the, the, they said that the cop done wrong, yeah. the town done wrong and the damage was $45 million. Yeah. But I've got lawyers who get 40% of that. That's $18 million. Then I have to pay the state back the $3 million that I get from them. So now I'm at $24 million. That sounds like a lot of money and it is a lot of money, but I'm going to tell you something right now. 
I would not go to prison for 20 years for $100 million. Nobody that has ever stepped foot in one or ever lived in one will ever take any amount of money to go through that again. So the the money, it's not going to fix anything as far as what was taken from me. 25-year-old you sitting in prison would never have thought that your would end up in MoMA and look at you. And that's brilliant. And the minute you start talking about it, no wonder so many people fall in love with you because you can't not be captivated by the way you tell your story, Dee. I'll tell you what was real interesting was the artwork, when I had to fill out an insurance policy when the art (laughs) left my parents' house. And this art is just in my parents' garage. It's just hanging on shelves in my parents' garage. And when I filled out the insurance thing and signed it, I took it into my dad and I said, look at this. This art, these five pieces that are going to this show in New York are more than your house. So don't forget what you got out there. So then what happened was when the when the art left MoMA and went to the next location, I had to fill out that, that insurance thing again. It doubled it, because it was at MoMA. Yeah. So I said, well, now you can buy two houses. <laughs> I like the part where you're talking about the um, the the other people on the panel, the other artists. Oh, yeah. talking about where their art has been on display and what museums. And that was before the MoMA show. I was in uh, I was at Rutgers speaking about my art with Nicole. She was right before she was writing the book, and I was on a panel. And the first guy that got up, he had art at Smithsonian and all these other famous museums, and uh, I was like, wow, this guy's for real. And then the next lady who was on the panel with me, she got up talking. Same thing. She had stuff in all these museums and different places. And, and some of these big buildings and companies had bought her art. And it was my turn to get up there. And I said, I'm on the wrong panel because all my stuff's in my parents' garage. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> if you want to get into this work, you have to have big, strong passion for it because it is a very defeating work. Um, there's a lot of roadblocks in America here. These people that are in this justice system do not want to change their mind. They swear up and down that nothing was done wrong. And we've proved it thousands and thousands of times that there's a whole lot of stuff done wrong. I mean, we, you know, there's no doubt several people have been executed for stuff they didn't do. Um, and you have to sit and watch these type of things happen right in front of you and have the passion and tenacity to just keep driving on you have to keep driving on because every move that you make doing this work is another little spot up the hill that the rock gets pushed and eventually if everyone is pushing on that rock at some point we're going over the top and it's going to roll back down on them and that's what you got to fight for every day you got to always remember at some point something is going to change thank you for listening to this episode of the innocence project london podcast If you would like to hear more conversations like this, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. At Jano Media, we recognize that great content has the power to create impactful and positive change for lives and society. Whether that's video, live streams, photography, or podcasts, partnering with us will enable you to harness the power of content to engage, inform, and inspire. Reach out to us today.